So last week we started a new sermon series on Isaiah 40 and Tim kicked it off talking about how sometimes you just stumble upon something and it changes your life. You meet a boy or a girl, you go on some dates and all of a sudden you look in the rearview mirror and you're married. Maybe you've been married a real long time. You pick up a new hobby or interest and all of a sudden a new career path opens before you. Or maybe somebody invited you to a Bible study, somebody invited you to Young Life or youth group, and you met Jesus, and your life changed forever. Tim talked about how in college, he, he found Isaiah 40 when he was at a college Bible study group, and it changed his life. And, and something we actually haven't even had the chance to talk about together is how when I was young, Isaiah 40 also impacted me deeply. I, I stumbled across it. Um, it actually might have been about the same time. You know, he was in college and I was in middle school. If you think about that too much, you'll realize his balding is not just from stress. He's getting kind of old, guys. Uh, but I remember my mom brought home one of these cheesy plaques from a Christian bookstore. It just said, Kyle, Isaiah 40, 30 and 31, and had the scripture printed out on the back. And I'm a youth pastor, so I love shoehorning a Bible verse unnecessarily into something all the time. Uh, but I think it's a pretty presumptuous thing to just a whole people group named Kyle, here's your life verse. And yet they did that for me. So here's what Isaiah 40, 30 and 31 reads. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And the main point of those two verses is pretty clear. Don't trust in yourself. If you continue to trust in yourself, your own abilities, your own powers, you will fall. You will be weak. You will be weary. But if you trust in the Lord, he will strengthen you. So don't don't trust in what you can do. Instead, put your confidence, your hope in God who can do all things. And I think my mom just bought me that plaque because I was a pretty anxious kid when I was a teenager. I was really always worried about tomorrow and how I was going to perform in school and all these things. And my mom knew that I needed to learn to trust in the Lord and not my own abilities. And so Isaiah 40 had a big impact on me too. Now, those two verses aren't actually our text today, but they're a good intro to our text because our text, verses 6 through 8, teaches the inverse of those two verses. At the end of Isaiah 40, we learn that we're supposed to put our trust in God, that he renews our strength, picks us up, carries us along when we trust in him. But here in these three verses, we're going to see how ruinous, how disastrous it is when we put our trust in ourselves and in the idols of our own making. We're going to see today that idolatry brings us to ruin and that really the only place we can actually find peace and life and hope is in the Word of God. So if you have your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to be in verses 6 through 8, and we're going to see three things today. First, your idols cannot save you. They always come up short. Second, God will lovingly ruin your life. We'll talk about that. And then finally, no matter how much sin and idolatry is in your heart, in your life, God's mercy never changes. His word stands forever. So turn with me beginning in verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
If you've ever spent time in the Old Testament reading through the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, etc., I, I pretty much guarantee you've been confused by something you've read. I do not envy biblical scholars who have to take ancient Hebrew and Aramaic that has no punctuation and make a modern English Bible. Because you come to a text like this, and one of the big questions that probably is just glaring as you read it is, who is speaking? Who's saying what? And there's no quotation marks in the Hebrew. And so we need to slow down and follow the flow of this conversation. There are two voices at play in these verses. First, there's the voice of this angelic messenger from God who says, cry. But then that angelic messenger doesn't speak again until verse 8, when it finally gives a response to the voice of Judah. That's our second voice, the voice of Judah, who is in exile, crying out to God. And so the voice of Judah actually responds with an exasperated question and then gives justification for that exasperation. What shall I cry? Or you could put it another way, what comfort is there to speak to this people? If you were here last week, you might remember the very first word, verse one of chapter 40, is comfort, comfort my people. And so the voice of Judah says, cry, cry a word of comfort. What do you mean? What shall I cry? There's no comfort for us. And then gives a justification for that exasperation, that frustration The people are grass. We are like flowers that fade. There's this frustration. We're not steady. He's basically saying, what hope is there for us? Everything that we've ever done has fallen to pieces. We're a mess. We're hopeless. That's what the voice of Judah is saying. And the voice of Judah is right. We have problems here? All right. A little better? All right, there we go. The voice of Judah is hopeless. The voice of Judah is frustrated, and the voice of Judah is right. There is no hope in human terms for this people. They are in exile. They have abandoned their God. Their life has fallen apart. They are frustrated, and for good reason. The kingdom of Israel used to be glorious. Under King David, under King Solomon, there was power and security, wealth and peace, and then it all fell apart. And if you're not an avid reader of the Old Testament, the reason becomes very clear again and again and again. It's the same problem. The people of God stopped trusting in God. They turned away from God. They started trusting in themselves and these idols of their own making. They stopped worshiping their God. Idolatry is at the center of understanding what's going on in our text. And in fact, there's one key word that makes that really, really clear. And I think this is one of those cases where we usually read the ESV here, and I think the ESV gets it wrong. The NIV translates it better. The ESV uses the word beauty in verse 6, but here's how the NIV actually translates it. All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The word there is hesed. It's one of the most important words in the entire Old Testament, It's a word almost exclusively used about God, and it's his character that it describes. It talks about God's covenantal faithfulness, his everlasting love, his unfailing mercy. God has hesed towards his people, and so that means he is good, he is kind, he is faithful forever. And the voice of Judah is saying, God's people, their hesed is like grass, It's like a flower that springs up in the springtime, but its petals fall away. We don't love like we're supposed to. 
we're not faithful. We don't do what we ought to do. We don't love God. We don't obey him. We don't trust him. We again and again turn away from him and love ourselves and all the things of our own making. And so Judah is desperate, is hopeless. It hears this message, cry, comfort, and they don't understand what comfort is there for me. Now, the voice of the angelic messenger is going to respond in verse 8. But before we get there, what does this have to do with you and me? You see, idolatry is not something that we can isolate to the ancient world. You know, just because we don't have like altars with wooden or, or stone or metal objects in our house that we worship doesn't mean we're not idol worshipers. And I don't just mean, you know, because there are, uh, you know, Hindus in, in India who have altars in their homes who worship false gods. No, you and I today in modern day America are idol worshipers. You are an idol worshiper if there is something that you trust in for your salvation that's not God. And I don't even mean that in a cosmic sense, like eternal life sense. Salvation in the sense of, if I don't have this thing, my life is meaningless. If I don't have this, I have no hope. If I don't have this, I don't have any direction. If I don't have this, I don't know who I am. That's what I mean. And so if we understand in those terms that idolatry is trusting in something other than God to save me, to make meaning out of my life, to give me hope and grounding, well, then probably all of us struggle with different idolatries. And so if you look at your spouse, for example, and you say, this person is so perfect, I can't imagine life without my spouse. I would have no direction whatsoever if I didn't have him, if I didn't have her. My life would make no sense. Maybe you've made an idol out of your spouse. If you look at your job and you say, I've earned this, I've achieved this, I've worked so hard to get here, and this, if I didn't have this job, I don't know who I would be today. I've poured my whole life into this. Who would I be without this job? Well, then maybe you've made an idol out of your job. Maybe it's something as simple as your health. You work out regularly, you eat well, you have a regular regimen of health and you love to be fit and to feel good and to be active and you think to yourself, if my health was taken from me, I would be miserable. I could never be happy if I was unhealthy. Maybe your health is an idol in your life. And here's the thing about idols. They always fail. They really are like the grass of the field that browns in the summer heat and blows away like the flower that falls. They always fail us. If you make your job your idol, every time somebody gives you criticism or negative feedback at work, you are going to be crushed. You can't actually receive that because your whole sense of self and identity is wrapped up in this work that you do. And so you're not free to actually just enjoy your work It's always measuring yourself. If you make your kids your idol, you will be crushed when they disappoint you, and they will disappoint you. But more than that, you will force them to disappoint you because you are putting this huge burden of expectation upon them to be for you what only God can be. And so you crush them as you are also crushed. If you make your health your idol, you will be crushed when you get sick or an accident happens in your life, and even worse, you won't be able to grow, grow and age gracefully because you can't entrust yourself to God because all that matters is being strong and healthy. 
Do you notice this pattern? Not only does trusting in idols create disastrous effects in your own life, ruin your life, it also takes these things that you could have received as a gift and enjoyed and ruins them because you've put them in the place of God. And so if you, money is your idol, you will never be happy no matter how much money you have. Of course, you're crushed when you have little financial resources. But even if you have much, if money is your idol, it's never enough. You'll never feel secure. That's your place. That's, that's God to you. And so it'll never be enough. If a person is your idol and you put all these expectations upon them to be for you what only God can be, that person will be crushed under the burden of what you want them to be, of trying to be perfect for you. And so idolatry, again, it ruins our lives. It brings hurt and pain to us, but it also brings so much destruction into these other places. And so I encourage you this morning, take an inventory. What is that thing in your life that you cannot live without? What is that thing that gives you meaning and hope and purpose and grounding that isn't God? And if we're honest, most of us have something. We're we're putting too much hope in a career, too much hope in our bank account, too much hope in my spouse, too much hope in my kids, too much hope in all the wrong places. And the people of Judah knew painfully that your idols can't save you. They can only crush you. But there's more to it than that. Look back at verse seven with me. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. So your idols have no power to save you. They can only end up crushing you. But it gets worse than that because it's God who blows on the grass and the flowers. It's God who brings your idols to nothing. God will lovingly ruin your life if you're an idol worshiper. You see, the word for breath, wind, and spirit in the Old Testament, it's all the same. It's ruach. And so whether, whether you translate it as breath or wind, since it belongs to the Lord here, it's very clear. It is the Holy Spirit coming against the people of God to bring them to nothing because they were faithless, because they trusted in themselves and in their false gods. And Judah gets it right. Judah was not exiled into Babylon because Babylon was so mighty. Judah was not exiled into Babylon because their army was so weak. Judah was exiled into Babylon because God willed it. It's all throughout the prophets. God determines what will happen in the nations. God determines what would happen to his people. God determines what will happen in your life. And he will lovingly ruin your life if you are living in sin, if you are living and worshiping idols. So two things really fast. Why would God ruin your life because you're worshiping idols? And why, do you, why should you believe it? Why should you trust that? So first... God ruins our lives for our good. Ezekiel 33, 11 says this. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God does not delight in the destruction of sinners. He wants them to turn. He wants them to come home. He wants them to find him as their loving father again and to worship him. He doesn't want to destroy you. He wants to turn you to repentance. 
And so the most loving thing that God can do when you are turned away from him, when you are following after the idols of the world and trusting in yourself instead of him, is bring you to the end of yourself. It's to get you to see that your idols really and truly are hopeless. In 2009, there was a YouTube video posted by Penn Jillette, who's from the famous magic duo Penn and Teller. And he's an atheist and doesn't believe in God and thinks religion is bad for the world. But he talked about how a Christian came up to him after one of his shows, gave him a Bible and told him, I'm proselytizing you. And Penn really appreciated it. This is what he had to say about the encounter. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you, and this is more important than that. Do you hear the logic of what he's saying? Penn doesn't even believe in Jesus, and he thinks this guy was being a good Christian. He was just doing his faithful duty because he believes that he needs Jesus. So if Penn can get it, why is that so hard for us to often get? Our sin is like a truck bearing down on us, and we are totally unaware. And God may tackle us to the ground to save our souls. And we may break a collarbone, we may cut our arms, we may get a concussion, but it's because he loves us. He wants to redeem us. My friend Mark Wilson works for Dry Bones, which is a ministry in Denver that creates community for unhoused teens and young adults. And he sings the praises of a product called Narcan. If you're not familiar with it, it's a chemical that will save someone's life when they're having an opioid overdose. And so it's a nasal spray, you put it up someone's nose, and it bonds with all the receptors in the brain that would typically be filled with opioids. And it saves someone's life. It knocks them out of their high and brings them back to the, to the world. They would have died. But what Mark has often said, he's only administered it twice, but he's said both times the person coming out of that high is furious. They don't realize they're dying. They're just angry that you took their high away. And that's so often us. God is saving our life. He's saving your life, bringing you back from the dead. And we're mad at him that he would bring some harm our way that he would bring our joy to an end in, the wrong, in all the wrong ways that we pursue joy. God will ruin your life to save your life. This was poignantly true for me when I was a teenager. My parents divorced when I was a teenager. And 15 years later, the story of their marriage and divorce and their faith response, each of my parents, that's their story to tell and not mine. But one thing I can tell you is that in the midst of my dad's marriage collapsing, every day he got down on his knees and he cried and he prayed. And I saw a deep transformation in his life. And it had a huge impact on me. And my dad became a spiritual hero in my life during those teenage years. Not because he was obviously perfect, not because he was so much better a man than everybody else, but because he trusted God in the midst of his pain and suffering and tragedy. That's why. And it had a huge impact on me. I don't think I would have gone to Bible college. I don't think I would be a pastor today if my dad hadn't responded in faith when God let the bottom drop out of his life. Do you have that kind of faith in God? That when he brings your idolatrous loves to ruin, 
when the Holy Spirit blows on your life and lets things collapse, do you trust that he's at work? Do you trust that he loves you? Because here's the thing. It's going to happen. God's going to bring some kind of suffering, some kind of hardship into your life, and you need to respond to it. You're going to respond to it. And you're either going to entrust yourself to his faithfulness, that he is good, that he loves you, that he's worth trusting, even in this hardship, or you're going to turn away from him and you're going to harden your heart even further to God. You see, not all of the exiles in Babylon turned back to Yahweh. They just exchanged some of their idols, the idols of the land of Canaan for the idols of Babylon. And so what will you do in the moment that calamity strikes? Will you trust that God is with you, that he's bringing these things about for your good? I'm not saying that God is the author of evil. I'm not saying that God calls everything in your life good. God doesn't think my parents' divorce was good. It was not good. But do you believe what Romans 8.28 teaches us? That God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Do you believe what Jacques Philippe says in his little book? That the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee that God can heal every hurt, every wound. Do you trust that God can bring good out of any evil, even the evil of your own life? This week, there's a, a member of our Trinity family who's in the hospital, and he's had a lot of complications, and the doctors aren't fully sure what's going on. And he's been emailing Pastor Tim and, I, and a few others and I uh, with updates, and we've been praying for him. And he sent an email just yesterday and he said this, we've been reminded again in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism that all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Do you believe that? In the moment of your crisis, will you cling to God's fatherly hand that he loves you, he is with you, he does not do this to destroy you, but to transform you, to bring you to new life. Your idols cannot save you. God will lovingly ruin your life. But there's one more piece. His mercy never fails. Turn to verse eight. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The old voice has come back. It's no longer the voice of Judah. It's the voice of the angelic messenger who's responding, who agrees with Judah. Yes, the grass withers. Yes, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you read this too fast, if you read through these three verses, you might get something like, okay, humans are frail and weak and faulty, and we've got all kinds of sin. We stink. God, he's really strong and sure and eternal, good forever. God is good. Humans stink. Something like that. And maybe that's you know, kind of in the text, but it's really missing the whole tenor of what Isaiah 40 is trying to teach us. And so we need to reset, slow down, what is this word that stands forever? And both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, the Bible interprets itself. So the apostle Peter takes our exact text and interprets it in light of Christ in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, 
is the good news that was preached to you. What is the word of our God that stands forever? It's the good news of Jesus. It's the good news that God is merciful and gracious. It's the good news that there is forgiveness for sinners. And before Isaiah 40 was ever written, David wrote a psalm about the same idiom, that flesh is like grass and the flower of the field in Psalm 103. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. What is the word of our God that will stand forever? It's his steadfast love. It's his everlasting love. It's his hesed, this covenantal faithfulness that he is merciful and gracious to us forever, that he never changes, that he is always offering forgiveness to wayward sinners. That is the word that stands forever. It's why our gospel reading today was the prodigal son story in the New Testament, in Luke. Because this might as well be the prodigal son story of the Old Testament. You see, here's God's people saying, what hope is there for us, God? We abandoned you. We turned our hearts from you. We, we went off into a far land and we worshiped all the false gods and our life has come to ruins. What hope is there for us? And God's response is the same as the father in the parable. This my son was dead, the grass withers, but now he is alive. The word of our God will stand forever. This my son was lost, the flower falls, but now he is found. The word of our God will stand forever. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if this is a brand new idea and you're like wondering if you're an idolater and what idolatries you have in your life. Or I don't know if you're poignantly aware of how your idolatries are crushing you, they're failing you, they're ruining your life. Or if you found yourself at the bottom, God has driven you to the end of yourself so that you could finally look up. But wherever you're at this morning, you need to know that God's word has not changed. He still offers mercy and grace. Each of us are invited to come to the table of our Lord Jesus to receive his mercy afresh. The everlasting love of our God never fails. His mercy is sure. His love for you never changed. No matter what sin, what idolatry, what wandering path you found yourself on, he invites you, come home. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can't even begin to comprehend your faithfulness to us. When we are made aware of all the ways that we wander from you, that we desert you, that we disobey you, that we love and serve false gods and idols, it blows us away that you never change, that your love and your mercy are new every morning. You do not treat us according to our sins, but you treat us with fatherly compassion and love. 
Lord, would you help us to receive your mercy this morning? Would you wake us up to the truck barreling down on us? Would you free us from our idols and help us to truly build our lives on your love? It is a sure foundation. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.